Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Let's talk movies for a minute. I wanted to give you the heads up on some of the scary movies that came out last month and this month. I, unfortunately, have to concede that with my current schedule, I haven't been able to get out to the movies as regularly as I'd like, and although I'm quite tolerant of attending a movie with bad reviews, when movie-going time is at a premium, I do have to be awfully picky about what I see. I'm sure many of you can relate. Cult of Chucky I remember being freaked out by that haunted doll when I was a kid. To be honest with you, a possessed doll doesn't really weird me out like it used to, so I'm willing to give this one a go, though. Better Watch Out. It's a Christmas horror film. The brief bit of it that I've seen looks like Home Alone with more murder. Dementia 13. This is a remake, or retelling, if you prefer, of a Francis Ford Coppola film. The original I didn't see, but this appears to be one of the examples of a movie that might deserve a remake. The original has so-so reviews, and the new film has slightly better than so-so. It's always a head-scratcher to me when a classic movie is remade. The original still exists. Why try to improve it? An okay movie with a solid premise? Sure, let's give it another go. Dementia 13 is about a family with secrets and an axe-wielding murderer. Happy Death Day. If you watched Bill Murray in Groundhog's Day and thought, I wish this movie had more murders, then maybe Happy Death Day is the one for you. A college student has to relive the day she's murdered until she can figure out who killed her. 1922. This list wouldn't be complete without at least one Stephen King adaptation. A man murders his wife and is haunted by his guilt. Tragedy Girls. Hopefully, by the time you hear this, I'll have seen this movie. It really got some folks talking the South by Southwest. High school girls who murder for fun and fame? That's right up my alley. Leatherface. If you haven't had enough of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre crew, here we go again. This one, though, sounds like it's more subdued prequel about how Leatherface became Leatherface. I'll give this one a crack. Jigsaw. Mm. I don't know, Children of the Night. I saw the original Saw, and the philosophical questions and twist at the ending just blew me away. The sequels got progressively further into mindless torture porn. This movie? I have some optimism, but I'm still on the fence about how this one might go. Mayhem. Stephen Ewan, who you know from The Walking Dead, stars in a film about a virus that causes everyone in a corporate office to lose all impulse control. Turns out, the impulse that everyone was controlling was the impulse to kill each other. Thelma. Well, this is one I'm looking forward to seeing. It looks like a coming-of-age story where a lady discovers that she has paranormal powers that seem tied to sexual awakening, and things get weird. Also, appears to have religious themes, which I nearly always enjoy in horror. That's the quick rundown. Look to your local theaters for showings, and I hope all of these movies are well-made and haunt all of you in your dreams. Now, time for some literature. Our story for this evening is from Eliza Clark. Eliza Clark is 23 years old and currently lives in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the northeast of England, where she was born. She inherited her love of gothic campy horror from her mother and grandmother and later developed a taste for Asian horror, sci-fi, and extreme cinema. Eliza publishes her debut novel with a small press publisher at the age of 18, then took a break from fiction writing to pursue her degree. 
Eliza graduated with a BA in Fine Arts from Chelsea College of Art and Design in 2016, and now, naturally, works in retail. Listen with me to Eliza Clark's Carver's Brew, a Tales to Terrify original. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbird styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Superlight Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Arthur had expected more resistance from Crowhead. Having faced only the slightest opposition from disgruntled members of the old Night Watch, Arthur was shocked by how quickly the village seemed to accept his new constabulary. He had always loved the idea of a little cottage in the country, and was delighted by his fast acceptance into the fabric of the community. Biddy too settled in. Though she complained of boredom at first, she soon admitted that Crowhead was a far nicer place for the children to grow up than smoggy Manchester. Wealthy merchants lived inside the town, and the country homes of the aristocracy peppered the valley. Owing to them, Biddy was beginning to fancy herself as quite the lady. The nights were quiet, and the mornings were gentle. Arthur walked to the dawn light pouring through his curtains like a pale whisky. He heard only the chattering of the birds in the valley, and Biddy pottering about as she fed the baby. A hammering on his front door shattered the morning's peace. Biddy was soon swearing foully as the baby began to scream. She stomped into the bedroom, child wailing and cradled to her breast. You'll never guess who it is. Not again, Arthur mumbled. Biddy perched on the bed, singing and consoling while Arthur stepped into a pair of trousers and his slippers, not bothering to change out of his nightshirt. He swung open the door to reveal, of course, Victor Spears. Gangling and bandaged in his night watch uniform, he loomed into the doorway of Arthur's little cottage like a bad smell. Another dead bitch at the gate, said Spears. Arthur felt a pang of nostalgia for the drunkards and thieves of the inner city. Spears demanded Arthur put on his coat and his shoes and follow the short walk to the town gate. The whole way Arthur grumbled beneath his visible breath. Cold dew tickled his bare ankles and black clouds gathered in the distance. The dog was easy to spot, right in front of that gaudy old gate, as she was. Spears marched over to it and pointed as if Arthur was weak-eyed or weak-minded. A sizable mongrel, yellow in colour, her tongue hung from her mouth, looking like a cheap cut of meat. Her eyes were still wet, though that could have been down to the dew, and they did not look dead at all. The grass was flecked with red near where she'd been placed, and her underside was matted scarlet, darkening in places to the colour of wine. Her teats were heavy, pink and swollen. Her belly had been slit, her puppies removed. Arthur supposed this was a slight cause for concern. Spears spat on the ground. That's Nora, that is, from the crow and hound. I see, said Arthur. It was disturbing, yes, awful, really. But Arthur hardly saw what he was supposed to do about it. Oh, this isn't your bloody belly cutter again, is it? Belly Carver, and that's the fourth one since you've moved here, Fletcher. Chief Constable Fletcher. Spears carried on as if he hadn't heard. There was the Spaniel in the summer, and then Lord Whoever's old gun dog ground harvest. Remember that muggy two-way in October? 
Arthur stared at Spears. He stared at his gnarled face and Spears stared right back. A silence lingered. Spears spat down on the ground again. His whole stance was adolescent. He was ready to shout down any alternative theory one could possibly propose. And arguing was a mistake that Arthur had made before. A mistake he certainly wasn't prepared to make again on a winter morning. I'll tell you what, Mr Spears, began Arthur. Spears huffed, the corners of his mouth flicking upwards behind a dewy cloud of breath. Nora was a well-loved dog, and this can't be allowed to continue. I'll look into it. They want to ask the girls round town in case any of them's thrilled, and search the damn wood too. Of course, Mr Spears. Arthur would have a set of puppies himself before he'd be caught combing the pale woods for fairy tales. Clementine found father in the shop. Though they'd long since shut, he was hand-sewing a hem by the light of an old gas lamp. She told him there was dinner on the stove and that Jack had already eaten. She was off to see Prudence and Mr Lumley for dinner. I'll probably stay the night because of the weather, said Clem. She waved her small travel bag and father smiled. A fine idea, Clem, said father. Pass on my thanks to Montague and Prue. Be sure to ask them about London. Clem's smile did not meet her eyes. Whenever Prue was staying at Mr Lumley's little house, it became father's singular goal to force Clementine upon them as often as he could. Prue had gone to stay with their Aunt Lucy for just a few weeks and had ended up coming out in society. A handful of months and she was engaged to a man more than twice her age. He was in line for a barony and had significant assets to match his coming title. Where Prue had been built to carry their father's hopes, Clem felt her knees threaten to buckle whenever the word London was so much as mentioned. It would be unfair for her to go anyway. Jack was so little and with mother gone, father could hardly be expected to look after him and the shop. The bell atop the door tinkled as Clem left. Immediately, she'd wish she'd picked up a scarf. She could turn back to get one, or she could just stay in, close the door and leave it closed. The weather was so foul after all. Clementine walked on, without her scarf. The rain was just heavy enough to feel wet and light enough to fog the streets. It had been cloudy all evening. And as the sky had darkened with sunset, the temperature plummeted. It was cold enough to snow, but the sky lacked that kind of pregnancy. Fingers of wind pulled at Clementine's cloak and her dress, yanking her hood from her head like a schoolyard bully. The traders were packing up for the day. Clem waved at Mrs Gascoigne as she locked the bakery and nodded to Constable Fletcher, who gave the chain of his timepiece a cautionary tap in response. Clementine put her head down and picked up her pace at that, though she allowed herself to roll her eyes. Proper ladies weren't allowed to be out on their own in cities, Prue had told her. It was not appropriate, nor was it safe. Cities were made up of strangers after all. Few outsiders ever came through Crowhead. It had even been completely walled off once during a plague. A little of the wall still stood, accented by a gate which served now only as a landmark. Clem and Prue always met at the gate, it being a halfway point between the little house and father's shop. It wouldn't be long. Clem rounded a final corner and crashed into a man whose face she did not see. Excuse me, sir, I... She clutched her bag and stumbled, wobbling in her boots. You one of the tailor's girls? It was Mr Spears. Clem stared down at the floor and nodded. Mr Spears was always skulking around at this time of night. Yes, said Clem. She took a step to the side and he moved with her like an unwanted dance partner. You're out late. I'm taking my dinner with my sister and her husband. I bet you are. She knew to pay Mr Spears no mind, but Clem's heart still seized in her chest. She felt her face turn hot. Her eyes met Spears, who wore a nasty grin. That sister of yours is a badden, he growled. A devious little cunt. While Spears revelled in his own vulgarity, Clem trotted around him without so much as a good evening. She did not even expend the effort to send a scowl back in his direction. 
A rough chuckle carried on the wind and Spears called that he'd be keeping an eye on her. Clem ran until she saw her sister. He was still bright enough to see Prue's face clearly, lovely as ever, but screwed up in the bitter wind. Locks of long black hair flapped around her face and stuck to her lips. She was clad in a fine, heavy cloak and a plain dress. Every inch a lady, bar the thick scarf, lay in atop her hood, knotted awkwardly at her neck. I know I look foolish, but my hood keeps falling down, she said immediately, as if Clem would care. Why on earth were you running? I ran into Victor Spears. Prudence rolled her eyes. Hang Victor Spears. He's a stupid old drunk who likes frightening little girls. Let's just go. We'll have lost the light soon enough. And with that, Prue turned heel and marched off up the path. Clem left trotting dutifully behind her. The wind blew hard enough to make one feel unsteady on one's feet. Clem's bag swung wildly in her hand, though the rain had mercifully stopped. I told father what you said to tell him. What did you tell Mr Lumley? Clementine asked. You can call him Monty if you like, you know. He says you make him feel like an old man with all that Mr. Mr. business, Prudence said, muffled in the wind. He is an old man, thought Clem. I told him I was taking dinner with you and father and that I'd be staying the night. But what if we'll simply keep Monty and father apart? I'll stay once or twice at father's before we leave for London and you'll stay once or twice at the little house and tonight we'll be muddled in with the others and forgotten. There's no need to worry. Prudence looped her arm through Clementine's and marched her forward. Prue had always been much taller than Clem and had little patience for Clem's little legs. If it comes to the worst, well, I'll think of something. The wind took a violent turn and shoved them forward rather than back. They turned from the main path onto a faint desire line worn into the long grass. Where are we going? Clem asked. Prudence clicked her tongue. Prue! You took ill when you were very little. That terrible fever you had, I don't suppose you recall. Vaguely, Clementine remembered only the sensation of feeling terrible. Like a reminder from a body never to catch a fever again. Mother took us to see Auntie Ethel, didn't she? Great Auntie Ethel had lived in a village not too far from Crowhead. She'd been a nurse once and had delivered Prue and Clem. Clementine could not recall meeting her, but remembered that Mother had wanted to see her shortly before Jack was born. Father had stopped her going, then had agonised over whether she might have lived otherwise. Yes, well, you mustn't tell Father this, warned Prue. But we've never had an Auntie Ethel. Oh, Clem thought. But you stayed with her before, before you left. Prue waved her hand as if that was an answer. It's this woman. She's very good. Knows all sorts of things about ladies' business and babies too. Prudence pulled on Clem's arm, tugging her in closer but making her stumble. But for the most part, she helps women in trouble. You could have told me this earlier. Prudence looked at Clem as if she was stupid. The sun fell and Prue and Clem were left in darkness. Clem was supposed to pick up a lamp but had forgotten in a panic though she did seem to feel she knew where she was going. Perhaps it was on account of having visited when she was so little, but she felt even without Prue she would have trusted this faint little path. Soon the clouds parted and the moon and starlight lit their way. The path grew over, but not before they came to a strange corridor of blackthorn trees, all with the same persistent white flowers clinging to their frigid branches. Each tree was pulled forward in the same direction, as if a giant had come upon them and bent them like cheap spoons. Shouldn't be long now, said Prue. The weather had calmed and they could drop their pace, which had been at near running with the wind as it was. Clem realised all of a sudden she was panting. Her face was hot, her heart fluttering. Even as her breath returned, her heart did not calm. She felt as if a small child were throwing a tantrum in a ribcage. She'd be wise to keep her mind free of little children. 
You mustn't be nervous, Prudence said. She is terribly odd, the woman. She's very odd indeed, but you mustn't be frightened of her. Prudence's tongue tickled the back of her teeth when she said terribly, her pronunciation well and truly received. In Clem's head there were two Prues. There was Prue, who talked normally and despised sitting still and snorted when she laughed. Then there was Mrs Montague Lumley, who sounded all plummy, and who talked about hats and acted as if she'd never done a day's work in her life. Mrs Lumley was too much like her stupid London friends, who all had elocution lessons, horsey faces, and absolutely enormous bustles. But Prue was Prue, and Prue was home. Who is she then? Clem had asked the other week when Prue had formulated this plan, and the question had been avoided. She'd asked in a note, the short ones that they run back and forth with Mr Lumley's valley, but once again Prue had ignored the question. She's just a woman, but Prue wrinkled her nose. Do you remember when we were younger, and if we were naughty, father used to say he'd leave us in the valley for the belly carver? The belly carver was supposedly a witch who lived in the pale wood. When Clem and Prue had been little, it was a favourite story among the children in the town, though adults still told it too. If you made the mistake of so much as mentioning carving near Victor Spears, you'd have to hear every version of the story that had ever been breathed. It went that the belly carver would go wandering in the valley for children out after sundown. When she caught them, she'd cut open their bellies and eat the insides. Her mouth was like a blunt beak, they said, so she couldn't chew her own food. If she'd enjoyed her meal, she'd stitch you back up and send you on your way. But if she didn't, she'd leave you open in the woods for the insects and the animals. Depending on the version of the story, sometimes she stitched a raven into your belly too, or dragged you back to her cottage where you'd have to chew and swallow all of her food for her forever. As they grew older, the story grew less foolish. There were whispers that there really was an ugly old witch living in the pale wood, that she was in love with Lucifer, and had been trying for decades to bear his child but couldn't. So she tricked young women into falling pregnant, then lured them out to the woods where she'd cut them open and steal their unborn children. Yes, Clementine did remember the belly carver. Prue, Clementine's heart picked up its pace. I don't want to be cut open. You won't. We've been very prompt about it. Clem hardly felt better. Everything they say about her is a lie. Clem still hardly felt better. She only cuts when she has to. The birds and the chewing and so on, that's nothing more than foolish stories. That hardly makes me feel better. Prue tugged Clem's arm. The blackthorn trees had thinned and the pale wood was there. It was eerie this time of year, with the birches bared and twisted as they were. Clem had never come out as far north as this in winter. Along the rim of the wood sat a cottage Clem had never seen before. It looked old. Its chimney smoked gently. Its windows glowed amber. Both sisters took a deep breath and walked on. Clem's feet grew weaker with each step, and she hoped that Prue could not feel her trembling. A figure appeared at the door of the cottage in silhouette. Clem saw only the shape of its long, wild hair, and the hem of its ragged dress, both fluttering, kicked up by the breeze. As they approached, it became clear that the belly carver was no beaked monster, nor was she particularly ugly or particularly old. She had seen enough time that her hair was silver, and that her face was lined and beginning to sag. Still, she was not so crinkled nor pockmarked as Clem had imagined. The only thing really of note were her feet, which were bare and muddy. Prudence, said the belly carver. I don't know this one's name. She squinted at Clem's face, stuffing her hands into the pockets of her apron. She was very common. Clementine, she was born here, and we brought her here once when she was little, said Prue. Clem couldn't take her eyes from the belly carver's dirty feet 
Aye, favour, the belly carver nodded. You'd best come in. They did. The cottage was one large room with drying herbs and strange animal carcasses hanging in bunches from the ceiling. Clem had expected a foul smell, but instead it was rich, savoury and intoxicating, with a note of summer flowers in this direction or cooked meats in that. There were a few raggedy chairs next to the fire where a large pot sat on the boil. She had one table covered in herbs and flowers and a tiny tatty bed shoved in a far corner. Sit by the fire. Warm yourselves up. I've got stew for you if you like, said the belly carver. Clem thought best to refuse whatever she offers you. She'd heard too many stories about people inadvertently making strange and mystical pacts by accepting a stranger's food. Oh, yes, please, trilled Prue. Had the belly carver not been looking straight at them, Clem would have elbowed her sister in the ribs. The belly carver gave Clem a look, then retrieved two old wooden bowls and two spoons from a cupboard. Every inch of the wall seemed to be cabinets or shelving and they were all cluttered with jar upon jar of cloudy sundry. The belly carver dunked the bowls into the pot on the fire, wiped the rims on her dress. Clem wrinkled her nose. There was a huge ladle hanging nearby, then handed the bowls over with a warning about the heat. The stew smelled delicious. It was a rich orange colour and packed with meat and vegetables. Clem's stomach growled with such ferocity it was painful. Carrot, potato, rabbit, leek and herbs for flavour, said the belly carver. It stung Clem's tongue on the first spoonful, but her mouth flooded at the taste of it. Prue gobbled her bowl down in minutes, grunting compliments as she did. Her table manners were always foul. It was good to see her guzzling like a pig again after all those prissy picky meals with Mr Lumley. Clem took her time eyeing the belly carver while the belly carver eyed her. So, it's you in trouble then, scrawny one. Can't be more than thirteen, can you? Clem frowned. I'm sixteen. You're having more stew, said the belly carver. Surprised a little thing like you could even bleed, never mind take a child. Clem shrugged. She didn't know what that meant. If she looked too young to bear or if the belly carver thought she was not appealing enough for a boy to want to touch her. Clem hated sitting next to Prue. Her common daisy beauty was a weed next to her sister's rose. How long since she last bled then? I missed a second one a week ago, said Clem. She scooped out the last spoonful of stew, only to have the bowl immediately snatched, refilled and shoved back into her lap. I told her we should come straight away. Prudence nodded to herself, setting the bowl neatly on the floor. Glad you learned your lesson. Your ladyship here lacks to stand on ceremony. Mightn't have told you she'd got herself into a spot of trouble when she was your age. All high and mighty she came in acting like she didn't know how it happened. And she was far too clever for this sort of thing. Not a strumpet, she told me. Said she was going to London. And I thought then, beauty like that, who's as sharp as she is, she'll marry up. Need to sort her out as good I can. So, I don't normally cut as late on as she was. I normally says, I'll help you have it. I'll find it a good home. I always do. I have my ways. But I thought, just, just in time to cut it is. So I cut. And she married up, didn't she? Some wealthy old git's third wife, I bet. Second wife, said Prudence. She was awfully red. Good. Not to wish ill on your man, but there's no better lot in life for a woman than that of a young widow. Used to know a lady who said, marry wealthy and often. Course, she was a poisoner, but there's worth things to be in life. Clem finished her second bowl of stew. She was now pleasantly full, and to her relief, the belly carver did not refill it again. Now, you lad, said the belly carver. I need to ask you some questions and I'd recommend you don't lie because things go wrong when you lie. He didn't force you, did he? Because that can make things more complicated. And he's not related by blood either, is he? He didn't and he's not, said Clem. She'd wanted to at the time. She really had. It just, it had hurt. It felt funny and it'd come to nothing but hurt feelings in this. 
You love him? You gonna marry him? Clem wriggled in her chair. She thought she had. He'd said he would. I, no, not really. And he, he said we were going to, but... You neglected to mention that, Clem, Prudence said. You'd have said I was stupid. Prue's face twisted. I'd have called him a snake. I'm going to tell his father he's been making lewd comments to both of us. While Prudence had a penchant for telling untruths, Fred was not in a position to rightfully deny inappropriate behaviour. Father did enjoy having an apprentice, but not so much that he would doubt that accusation, particularly if Clem were to corroborate it. Confirm half a lie, and she would never have to see Fred again. The idea did not bother her as much as it should. Best to get him out your hair. Sounds like a shit anyway, said the belly carver. They always are at that age. Anyway, this should be a simple one to deal with, with other factors taken into account. Sometimes you've got to make changes to the brew, but no changes here. Just the standard stuff. No trimmings, no fuss, no worries. She pattered over to the table and sat on the rickety wooden chair, where she began chopping and grinding, and at one point spitting. Clem was sure. She barked for the sisters to remove the stew pot from the fire, and she replaced it with a smaller pot. Prue was tasked with fetching water from the well outside, while the belly carver wanted Clem still and by the fire. Silence lingered, broken only by the scratch of pestle on mortar. Clem took a breath. A brew. So it was just a drink. No carving, no slicing, no birds in her belly. Just a drink. I don't know if your sister's told you this, the belly carver began. But don't tell the men about me. Because there's nothing more frightening to a man than a woman who knows things he don't. Understand? Yeah, Clem nodded. She won't dream of it. The belly carver was hardly the monster of the tales. But Clem didn't want to brag about her visit. If a woman needs me, you bring her. I can't do nothing with a boy once he's old enough to remember. Used to treat all sorts, but... The belly carver sighed. Learned my lesson about that. Clem didn't want to pry. She promised not to tell, then returned to her thoughts. She was tired. The heat of the cottage wasn't helping, and her eyes grew heavy. Then Prue kicked open the door, swinging a bucket of water, and Clem jumped from near sleep with an unflattering snort. So, what does this portion do then? asked Prue, apart from the obvious. Brew. It makes you bleed. Bleed heavy. This early on, the baby's so little it comes out with the blood. Not even a baby at all, really. You'll have to stay so I can keep an eye on you. Not going back to crow head and bleeding all over the place. The belly carver laughed oddly to herself. She had Prue fill the pot by the fire, then came over, clutching a mortar, with a few strange jars tucked under the crook of her arm. You just dream, girl. You wake up to swallow this, then go straight back to sleep. We'll watch over you. Clem nodded and curled into a cloak. Fred's mouth was rough and wet. He sucked at her lips like they were overripe peaches. Clem struggled to kiss him back, then yielded to him. Books had described kisses in delicate sensations and flavours. Clem felt and tasted little more than an abundance of foreign saliva. She tried to like it regardless. He grabbed at her breasts, and Clem heard the thread holding the buttons to her dress creak. She loved this dress. She'd made it herself. The wool was fine, and a shade of blue that brought out her eyes. The stitching was so neat, Father had said so proudly. She pushed Fred's wrist, and he stopped kissing her, watching her unbutton herself like a gun dog watching a rabbit. Under her dress, which she dropped to the floor lay a cotton chemise, a hand-me-down from Prue that had once been white and was ratty at the hem, a flush of embarrassment. She had plenty of new ones, and this was typical of her look. Are you going to take that off? Clem glanced towards the stairs. It was late, but if Father heard anything, he'd come down. Fred licked her neck. His teeth were so white. He smiled so broadly, his dimples showed and she couldn't stop a silly girlish giggle tumbling from her lips. She tugged her chemise over her head, and was left just in her drawers and stockings. Fred's smile dropped, 
She hadn't much to show him, bar a prominent ribcage. Clem crossed her arms, crumpling under his unhidden disappointment. Drink up! Clem swallowed. The room swirled. Prue said something muffled and distant. A rough hand and a cheek, a thumb rubbing soothing circles. Drink it all down, that's it. It tasted bitter. Worse than bitter. Like the smell of nettles and black tea. The texture was strange. Oily, slimy. Like it should taste putrid, but it didn't. It was overwhelmingly fresh. Just so acrid with it. It was something she shouldn't be drinking. And with the little energy Clem had, she fought the instinct to spit it out or cough it up. Just a little bit more, then back to sleep. Just a few more swallows and it's all gone. He clicked Clem's stockings and bruised her throat. He clasped at her chest, looking for something to hold, finding nothing and leaving little scratches. It burned when it went in. Then Clem found herself overwhelmed with little more than the urge to urinate. She whispered to him that she loved him. He grunted into the crook of her neck. Her brow was damp with sweat. Someone had taken down her hair and changed her clothes. Every muscle between her belly and her thighs felt as if it had been knotted for hours, but had suddenly slackened. Mingled and inseparable, both relief and pain throbbed beneath her skin. Just changed your sheets, said the belly carver. Sometimes they wake up before I manage. Oh, they're screaming. You'd think they'd never seen blood before, she grumbled. She was bent over a wash basin, scrubbing her sheets and gruesome water. Went smooth, no trouble. Woke up shouting once or twice, but now from the ordinary. Should be a bit sore for a few days, and you'll have spots of blood for a while. Could be a week, could be a few. See how it goes. Longer than that, though, you should come back here. Clem sat up a little. Nothing was clear, as if she'd had too much wine with dinner. Where's Prue? Just went dawn, so she's gone back to the husband of hers and your father, going to tell both of them you've taken ill and you're to stay with her. la da and so on. I hardly followed her. Talks a load of rot, that one. She's coming back for you at any rate. What's your name? asked Clementine. The belly carver looked up from her washing with a small smile. She said nothing for a moment. I'm Ruth. Well then, thank you very much, Ruth. Ruth took her hands from the wash basin and dried them upon her apron. Last night's shoe was still crusted onto her dress, and her fingernails were pink. Just be a bit more careful next time. Don't like doing it more than a few times on a girl. Isn't very safe. You understand, Miss Clementine? Yes. Nodding with a glance at last night's shoe pot, Ruth was whip-fast hooking it onto the fireplace and lighting a fresh stack of kindling with an old tinderbox. I'll get you fed again before you leave. The stew was no less delicious than it had been the previous night. A timepiece hung over the bed and read half past seven. Clem chewed on a piece of rabbit meat and realised with a twist of guilt that she'd only made enough food for a night and a day. Father and Jack would have to ask next door or go to the crow and hound. She decided it was better they go hungry for a little while than the alternative. There was a woman here before me, said Ruth, suddenly. She began to eat too, her washing abandoned. In one of her moth-eaten chairs, she sat with her legs on a footstool, splayed apart in a manner most unladylike. A long time ago it was. She taught me my craft, left me a big book, which I still use. Hundreds of years old it was. She was quiet and very polite, not like me at all. Nice lady. Skinny. You remind me of her a bit. It's why I say. Clementine supposed this was a compliment. Ruth slurped the rest of her stew down noisily and quickly, and then went outside to fetch from the well. Clem was parched, even after the stew, and drank the water Ruth gave her like it was the first flagon she'd seen in weeks. If Ruth had wished to bind her in a strange and mystical dinner pact, Clem would be soundly stuck. Perhaps she was too numbed with the shock of it all to remain afraid. She got out of bed, despite the hearty meals and the time passed. Clem's knees trembled and the muscles in her lower abdomen twisted. She was on her feet but not without difficulty or nausea. Your things are at the foot of the bed, 
said Ruth. Clem found her travel bag, with yesterday's dress and under things, folded neatly beside it. The drawers were stained a rusty brown. She'd burn them rather than bleach them. But nothing else had been ruined. Already wearing clean drawers and a fresh chemise, she slipped on her stockings and swapped the clean clothing in a bag with yesterday's dirty things. As Clem buttoned herself, it occurred to her that the clean dress she brought was pure white. It seemed an audacious colour to wear given what she'd done. There was now a lie upon her back, plain to see. There was a lie all over her drawers too, and a vacancy in her womb, as disgraceful as the child itself had been. Stew rose in her gut and burnt her throat. She swallowed and hiccoughed, a foul taste lingering upon her tongue. I want to go, said Clem. Fine, Ruth replied. She was busy with her washing again and barely looked up from a basin. Remember what I said, back in a few weeks if you're still bleeding and don't tell anyone about me, unless you know a girl in need. I know. With that, Clem was out the door. The weather was considerably milder than it had been yesterday, but the cold soon numbed Clem's ears and cheeks. She would be with Prue again soon, and Prue would, somehow, make this all better, be it with tea and cake, or with a barrage of cheerful platitudes. Prue would make it better, Clem felt a lump in her throat. Something bulging, desperate to spring from her mouth. It was either a sob or a vomit. The sting in her eyes suggested tears, but the churn of her gut disagreed. She was stricken then by an intense pain. She'd been running... It had been a silly thing to do. Knees buckled and she fell, emptying stew and bile onto the dewy ground. She spluttered and she sobbed. Fat tears stung her cheeks. She wrenched up fistfuls of grass and dirt and tossed them onto the vomit. A foolish attempt to disguise a private humiliation. Her white dress now stained with grass. Her nails filthy. More things to explain away. She thought of the stained drawers in the bottom of a travel bag, festering like a corpse in need of disposal. She was not sure how long she spent sobbing, twisted up with the pain, the nausea, the awfulness of it, but her vomit was completely blanketed in grass. Someone yanked her hair. Witch, hissed a voice. A blade at her throat. Clem coughed, still weeping, and it pinched her skin. No waste leaving a devil's whore outside the gate. Fletcher can't ignore a tailor's girl gutted like he ignores a dog. Please, choked Clem. I, I never, I'm just walking. I felt sick. I never. The words squeaked out between sobs. Clem knew it was Mr Spears who had her. Where is she? Where's the head witch? Where's the belly carver? Clem was surprised she'd gone far enough that the cottage was no longer in plain view. She pointed in a direction, any direction. Liar, said Mr Spears. I'll gut you like a fish. I'll split you. He didn't seem to care if she answered or how. He just pulled her hair and raved and raved. His knee was wedged at the back of her neck and he stank worse than the vomit. I'll get her. And I'll gut her. I always believed. Her head to silence, wagging tongues and laughter. I'll get her. East of here, coughed Clem. Please, east. The knife went away from her neck but the first stayed in her hair. He dropped to his knees behind her and lay his palm across her belly. His fingernails were so long and dirty. He pressed and she squirmed into his chest. She should have waited. She would have been safe in the cottage. Whatever evil she's planted there, we'll get it out. He kneaded her with his palm, a wet growl in her ear for every whimper. Clementine knew he would stay here forever if he could. He was a hand of God, dealing righteous punishment to a little witch. She was a villain in his story, and she gagged on her comeuppance. I'm going to drag you there by the hair, he said, and I'll burn you and the witch together. Send you to hell where you belong. Then came a sudden crack. A crack, a crunch, a wet splatter, and his grip fell from Clem's hair. She shoved away, dragging her hand into her own vomit as she struggled to stand. She spun. Mr Spears lay unconscious on the ground. And above him stood Prudence, a massive rock clenched in her delicate hands. I was coming back for you, said Prue. 
Clem ignored her. Panic, animal panic still thrumming in her veins. Clem took up Mr. Spears' knife from his loose fingers and plunged it into his neck. She cut him as easily as a Sunday roast. Arthur crossed yet another name from his notebook. The Crow and Hound's regular patrons had seen neither hide nor hair of Victor Spears since Saturday night, and Arthur was truly stuck for ideas. It had taken a week for Arthur to notice Spears' disappearance, and he seemed to be the first to do so. Spears had no family and no friends, as far as Arthur could tell, and he was not well loved. Perhaps it was less than no one had noticed, and more no one had cared. Spears' cottage was crumbling, bare of personal artefacts, but filthy and full of notes and books on the occult. He was an unbalanced man who seemed to have lived a lonely life. Arthur would not be surprised if Spears had left Crowhead in some sort of a drunken hoof. The lack of fanfare, however, was out of character. If Spears were really to have left, Arthur was sure he would have made sure everyone knew about it. Thus, the investigation. Only two names remained unquestioned in Arthur's battered little notebook, and they were long shots at that. The Hale sisters, or rather Mrs Lumley and Miss Hale, had been returning from a walk in the valley. The morning Spears had traipsed out of Crowhead himself, never to return. Miss Hale was reported by a concerned Mrs Collingwood, who had bumped into Arthur and Biddy on the way to church, to have looked dishevelled, ill and barely able to stand, as her sister half carried her back to Mr Lumley's country house. Said country house was Arthur's destination, and he was somewhat surprised to see two rather heavily loaded carriages on the path outside. They must be leaving for London today. Arthur exchanged a nod with a coachman he did not recognise. As he walked up the pathway to the house, Mrs Lumley opened her front door. She was exquisite, even in her plain travelling clothes. She had probably seen him coming. Constable Fletcher, what can I do for you? She sounded surprised and apologised that she had nothing to offer him as they were all packed for the return to London. I know you needn't worry, Mrs Lumley. Is your husband home? No, I'm afraid he's at the shop, speaking with my father. Clementine is coming to London with us, you see, said Mrs Lumley. She smiled prettily. Are you aware that Victor Spears is missing? Is he? We've been so busy. Is there anything I can do? The pretty smile fell in a snap to a perfect look of concern. Butter would not melt in Prudence Lumley's mouth. Arthur frowned. Spears had not been a popular man, and if local tell was to be believed, lovely young ladies especially would have cause for relief if he were to go missing. You can answer a few questions for me. I understand you took a walk last Sunday. Mrs Collingwood told me that morning she'd seen you. Apparently Miss Hale's dress was dirty and she could hardly stand. Without missing a beat, Mrs Lumley answered. She'd taken ill over dinner the previous evening. She decided she was well enough for a walk that morning, so we took one. Though I'm afraid she overexerted herself, she became rather ill and fainted. Arthur thought on this for a moment. A theory jumped out at him as theories often did, in the mind of an experienced constable. It hardly seemed proper to voice to a lady, especially without her husband present, but time was clearly ticking away, and Arthur suspected it would not be long before they'd all be on their way to London. Forgive me for asking this, but if Mr Spears were to have had anything to do with Miss Hale's state of dishevelment, well, we would know it was a little to do with her, and much to do with him. You'd be advised to tell me. I do not like what you suggest, Constable. Mrs Lumley scowled, and Arthur immediately felt himself flush. It was a foolish question to ask. Her tone and expression had Arthur feel more like a naughty schoolboy than a chief constable. I was about to tell you, however, that we did see him. He came barreling past us, ranting and raving. I think he was headed for the pale wood. He frightened Clementine, but he didn't lay a finger on her, snapped Mrs Lumley. My apologies, ma'am, for having offended. It was a crude thing to suggest. Arthur could not look her in the eye. 
Thank goodness they were leaving soon. Biddy would have had kittens if she heard about this. Mrs Lumley sighed. It's all right, Constable. I understand it's merely your job. Though I'd ask you not to trouble my poor sister with such suggestions. She is a far more fragile creature than I. Arthur nodded, apologised once more to Mrs Lumley and went on his way. He cursed at the ground. It seemed that he'd be combing the woods whether he liked it or not. Doubtless he'd find it as free of monsters as he would of Mr Spears. Though, was there any point in bothering? If a foul man wished to extract himself from a nice community, who was Arthur to stop him? What man voluntary wedges a plucked thorn back into his own side or returns a bad apple to the bunch? If Spears wanted to return, he could, but it would not be by Arthur's hand. So Arthur returned to Crowhead, his daydreams filled with undisturbed mornings free of animal carcasses. That was Eliza Clark's Carver's Brew, as read by Ashley Story. Ashley Story is a stand-up comedian, viral video maker of the If Harry Potter slash Handmaid's Tale slash Gwyneth Paltrow was Scottish series with 22 million views and co-host of Janie Goodley's podcast. She's quite funny. Follow her on Twitter at Ashley Story. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors, Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Leitze, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 License. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.